Thank you for listening to the Alliance Church Podcast. We desire to connect you with God and one another, whether here in Wisconsin or around the world. Let's listen into this week's message. Question. What is the main theme of Christmas? Let's take a look at what some people are saying. Um, uh, happiness. Joy. Uh, Jesus. Christmas is fun. Right. Family. A stress. For us, Christmas is the big Catholic party celebration, so it's a time to be in, together with our family, even though they are not here, but we like to travel to, we are come from Spain, so we like to travel to Spain to be with our family there. I think very nice, because I think this is a, Jesus Christ was born, and that's why every people in the world very happy. It's the holiday that family can gather together, we are friends and families, and we can give meaningful presents for each other. Christmas means cheer, uh, happiness, lights, decoration, spending more money, big sales, uh, shopping, uh, Sales, uh, shopping, oh, and shopping. Got the presents. So that's all. <laughs> yeah, pretty common answers, right? At Christmas, the theme of Christmas for lots of people is shopping, gift giving, family, and if you're religious, of course, you probably say the birth of Jesus Christ. But if you study the gospel accounts, of Christmas, the birth accounts, a, a main theme emerges that's pretty clear. As a preacher, I would tell you the main theme of Christmas in the Gospels is worship. Practically everyone in the Gospel account is worshiping or praising God. Elizabeth, let's start with Elizabeth. When she hears that Mary is pregnant, she blesses her. She explodes with excitement and appreciation for what God is doing. Let's look at the text here in Luke chapter 1. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she explained, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. Later on in verse 67, Zechariah, who is of course the father of John the Baptist, he hears about the coming of the birth of Christ, and when he hears the news, he worships and praises God for sending a Redeemer. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, and he has said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the land of all who hate us. And then you turn to the shepherds, of course, in the fields. They hear the angels, and what are they doing? They're worshiping. Luke chapter 2. He had, 
Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And then you have Simeon, Simeon, the old man at the temple, when he sees Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to be dedicated at the temple, Simeon worships. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms, and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And then close by to Simeon is Anna. Anna, who meets Joseph and Mary too, Luke chapter 2. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. And she was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. And she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but staying there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. And of course, sometime later, you have the wise men, the magi from the east, and they come worshiping and giving gifts to the newborn king. Everybody, I mean everybody in this account, is worshiping. What's the main theme of Christmas? It's worship. And of course, I haven't even mentioned for you the greatest worshiper of all at that first Christmas. I think the greatest worshiper that we know of at the birth of Christ is Mary. Without question, the record indicates it is Mary's song of worship recorded in Luke chapter 1 that is the greatest tribute of worship to Jesus Christ than anybody involved in the birth account. Mary is the worshiper. So that's the section in the Christmas story that I want to zero in on this morning for us. Our preaching series this year is King Jesus from Throne to Manger. I want us to look at Mary's song, which is mentioned here in Luke, and draw from it three very important principles that we can learn on how to worship this king who has come from the manger, who has come from the throne to the manger. How do you worship this king? Number one, worship always begins when someone realizes that God has saved me. Worship really begins in a person's heart when they come to the place where they realize God has saved me. Notice how Mary begins her hymn of worship. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
Mary starts off by saying, I've, I've gotten saved. I'm saved. God is my Savior. You know, you hear Christians say that, don't you? You hear believers say that when they're giving their testimony. They're saying, I was saved in high school. I was saved on that night. That night I was born again. I was saved. What are they saying when they say that? They're saying that this is the day that the lights went on. I got it. God revealed to me the message of the gospel, and I was saved on that day. I realized I was saved. The very first thing Mary does in her worship is make the statement that God has saved me. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, I grew up Roman Catholic, and to Catholics, this can be a little confusing to read that verse. And the reason is, is because the Roman Catholic Church has made some alterations or additions to what the Bible says about Mary. I'm not sure if you realize this or not, but the Roman Catholic Church has two forms of revelation. The Bible, which we would hold to and agree with them, is that the Bible is God's revealed truth to us. But in the Catholic Church, they believe equally to the Bible is what they call sacred tradition. What, is, what comes from the, what they call the magisterium, the bishops, the pope, the leadership of the church. So the church can teach something to its people and say, this is what God says, and to them it's equal to the Bible. So, for example, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary had what's called an immaculate conception that has nothing to do with the NFL. They've used it a lot. But the Immaculate Conception also has nothing to do with the birth of Christ. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception claims that Mary herself was not only born without sin, but that she lived her entire life without sin. Is that true? Not according to that verse. Why would Mary be praising God for saving her if she had no sin? She calls him God, my Savior. Mary was born a sinner like all of us. Another alteration is that uh, they teach that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And this was a shock to me when I first picked up the Bible at 24 years old of being a good Catholic. I just believed that. And I read the Bible, and I read this in Matthew chapter 13, and it shocked me. Coming to his hometown, Jesus, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get, the, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. Jesus, we know, had four brothers and several sisters. He came from a large family. And he was the oldest. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Another addition to Mary that the Catholic Church teaches, is that Mary was assumed into heaven. Now, we know that Jesus certainly was assumed into heaven. It's recorded there in Luke chapter 24 in the book of Acts. Jesus was near Bethany, it says, 
And he left his disciples, and it says, the text says, he was taken up into heaven. He was assumed into heaven. But Mary? Mary never ascended into heaven. You can read your Bible all through the New Testament. You'll never find the scene of Mary ascending into heaven. In 1950, Pope Pius XII decided Mary's assumption should be taught as dogma, official doctrine, 1950. No mention of it in the Bible. So the point I'm trying to make here is because of these conflicting additional teachings about Mary, people have ended up sometimes confused, even worshiping Mary. Mary is never to be worshipped. Mary is the worshiper at Christmas. This song is a hymn of worship from Mary to God. And Mary begins her worship by saying, I'm a sinner. I'm someone who has been saved. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. My soul, she says, magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The word she uses there, by the way, magnify. The Greek word is magaluni. It's where we get the word mega, mega. Sometimes in the summer, I'm riding in a car, and there could be a knucklehead next to me who's got his mega bass going at full-blown speed. Don't even get me started there. Like, it doesn't matter what anybody experiences around that car. But that, what is that? We call that a mega base. It comes from that root word. Big. Mary is saying, my, my heart, my soul, my spirit is exploding with the fact that God has saved me. That's where worship begins. And for those of you who have been born again and know Christ... Many of you could give testimony about that, that that's when the first time in my life I really knew who God was. And I was able to open up my heart and for the first time truly worship him. The second principle that Mary's song teaches us is that worship is sincere, not superficial. True worship is never superficial. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 50 he shows mercy. This is Mary's worship. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Look at this. Look at how she worships. This is not what we call sometimes a, a popcorn prayer. You know what a popcorn prayer is? It's when we don't even think about it. We say, Lord, bless me. Bless the world. Bless everybody. It's just a popcorn prayer. Not much thought. It's actually very superficial. Not this prayer. She not only praises God for saving her, but then she goes into specifically mighty ways that God has shown himself to the world. And she talks about the Jews and how faithful he's been to her people, the Jews. This, this worship is well thought out, it's passionate, and it's sincere. She quotes in her worship, Psalm 103, verse 17, which says, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. 
Now, I'm, I'm not trying to be critical because I am very, very thankful that in the alliance here we have, from top to bottom, we have a worship team and, wor and musicians and singers and very talented people who bless us very much each week. Would you not say that about this morning's worship? Was that not wonderful and beautiful and sincere? But I think it's true, and maybe you've experienced this. I've been in some evangelical worship experiences sometimes that, that seem very shallow to me and superficial. And, and I believe what the principle is is that God takes no pleasure in that kind of worship. Look at, look at what Isaiah says in uh, chapter 1. This is God speaking. He says, what, what makes you think I want all of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams, of the fat of fattened cattle, their animal sacrifices. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asks you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offering disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath, and for your special days of fasting, they're all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon and celebrations and your annual festivals. They're a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I won't look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. God does not take pleasure when worship is superficial and mechanical. And then later on in Isaiah, he says this. And so the Lord says, these people say they're mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Might that be said of some of the Christmas worship that supposedly happens? These people... Would not God maybe say, these people are singing Christmas carols about me? They talk about my birth. They put me in their Christmas cards. But they do not honor me. Their hearts are far from me. No, Mary's worship is not superficial. It is very sincere. Third principle that we can grab from her song is that the true worshiper understands who they are and who God is. Listen to me. This is very important. If you're going to come and worship God, the God of the universe, you have got to have a proper understanding, friend, of who you are and who God is. He's not your buddy He's somebody to be respected. There should, there, should, there should be, whenever people come to worship this God, a certain amount of respect. Mary is completely floored that God would even choose her. She says, God, I'm a nobody. I'm a humble servant. You know the word that's used there? I preached on this a couple of months ago. Our Bibles are our American Bibles. And most Bibles around the world, by the way. And it doesn't matter what translation you look at. The translators felt throughout the centuries, there's so much baggage with the idea of slavery 
We can't translate this word slave. It has to be translated servant. So in all your Bibles, it says servant. Almost every time you see servant, the word is doulos. And there's no question in the, in the New Testament Greek, doulos was slave. She says, God, I'm a slave. I'm somebody who has no rights. I'm a humble servant girl. girl. But you, God, she says in her prayer, you are the mighty one who has done great things for me. Look at what she says here in verse 48. He's been mindful of the humble state of his servant, slave. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Whenever you see the term holy in the Bible, it means totally other than any human being, whatever, what any human being is like. God is totally other. Holy is his name. Mary has a proper understanding as she worships of who she is and who this God is. This week, this week I went to my sermon file and I pulled out an article that I printed some years ago and I read it again and it's floored me. I remember the first time I read it. It's, uh, it's, the title of the article was The Attitude of Albert Einstein Regarding Organized Religion and Preaching. It was written by a professor at University of Maryland who was a physics professor. And he studied Albert Einstein, of course, one of the greatest minds, if not the greatest minds ever, scientist. Here's the quote I highlighted. I do see the design of the universe as a religious question. That is, there ought to be some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent. It shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe this is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God, and he felt that they were blaspheming him. Einstein had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is Einstein just felt that the religions he had run across did not have a proper respect for the author of the universe. When I read that, I was so cut. I mean, I was cut and convicted that I remember getting on my knees and asking God, that would never be said about my preaching. Now, if you're going to talk about God and you're going to worship this God, you ought to have a certain amount of respect. 
You see, pride, pride is the worship of self, and it competes with God. The proud get angry with God because he didn't deliver the way we think he should have delivered. I, 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 I didn't get what I counted on, what I hoped for, what I prayed for, what I think I deserve from God. So, God, so people want to retaliate. Pride wants to retaliate. I was with a, an older man, I was asked to go visit an older man who's near death, and I go to visit him, and he went on and, and, and talked to me for 20 minutes about how he's angry with God, and the whole time I'm thinking, you know, you have probably a few reasons that maybe be upset with God, but don't you realize he's got thousands of reasons to be upset with you? You see, humility, true humility, is focused on who God is. And, and what may or may not be ours is of little consequence because you don't focus on you. You're not the issue. God hates pride. He resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to somebody like Mary who wants to approach him and come in utter humility. I'm just a servant, Lord. I'm just a humble little girl, servant girl. I can't even believe that you're taking notice of me and that you choose me. I, I want to tell you something today. If you approach God with that kind of humility, with Mary's humility, God is going to listen to you. Regardless of what you've done. Regardless of what your past looks like. In fact, that's why Jesus comes to, at Christmas, right? He, he comes to give someone like you and me a fresh start. But you've got to do what Mary did. She does two things. Two very clear things in her worship. Number one, she admits, I need a savior. And God, you're the only one that can save me. So she abandons any attempt to fix herself or to fix her problems or to do, do any kind of self-improvement. She's saying, God, you must save me. And secondly, she trusts in God's plan for her life, whatever it is. I'm your servant. May your plan, she says in her prayer, may your plan for me be fulfilled. Your plan. Not my plan, your plan. Christina Rossetti wrote a famous Christian poem in 1872. It goes like this. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor the earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In that bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. 
angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim throng the air. But his mother, only in her maiden bliss, worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him? Poor as I am, if I were a shepherd, I would give him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. What can I give him? I know I will give him my heart. Have you done that? That's what he wants from you. He wants nothing more than that. He wants your heart. Close your eyes. Let me pray with you now. God, we come to you with respect. We have an understanding because of Mary of who we are. We're just a bunch of humble servants. But you are holy and you love us. And, and you offer. I mean, what a picture it is at Christmas. You humbled yourself to become a child from throne to manger to communicate to every single one of us in this room that you understand us, you love us, and you will humble yourself to bring us back to you. But you want our heart. You want all of it. Not 90%, not 95%. You want all of it. You, want, you actually want to kill this old person inside of us that continues to fail, and you actually want to raise up a whole new person empowered by you. And I pray, God, that at some point in this Christmas season, for those of us in this room that have not turned our hearts over to you, that at some point we'll do that. It, it, that will be a supernatural moment when you bring us to the place where you open up our eyes so we see who we are and who you are. And our response is to simply surrender everything to you. Oh, God, bring all of us to that place of sweet surrender. We thank you, Lord, for this prayer of Mary and what she's taught us today. Do your work in us. Pray in Jesus' name.